Hello and welcome to the Mind Over Matter podcast. I am your host, Luke McLean. This is the show where I interview experts on all things mental health and well-being, from strategies you can learn like mindfulness, deep breathing, and cold showers, to people with lived experience like myself who have lived with mental illness and or addiction and open up about their pain to share what has helped and hindered them to provide you with motivation and inspiration to live the best life you can. So let's take the power of our minds back and live a healthier and happier life. Now on today's show, I talked to Flick Manning. Now she is the kind of person that receives hugs instead of handshakes and she admits an energy that is infectious, a determination that is empowering and a sense of humor that uplifts people. She started her career in entertainment as a dancer and choreographer before diving headfirst into all things business, wellness, fitness, and mental health. After tackling several invisible and conditions of her own, Crohn's disease, IBS, and mental health, she created a system that helped her defy the odds to not only survive, but thrive. She spent three years working in the Silicon Valley startup scene, learning about burnout and business. Deeply inspired, she returned to Australia and launched Corthentic, her wellness system aimed at demystifying wellness and making it sustainable for use in the real world. Her first book, Living Human, is due out in the coming year and details her story of overcoming the odds. Flick's a certified wellness coach, personal trainer, meditation guide, and dance teacher, a motivational keynote speaker with a diploma in neuroplasticity, and an experienced entrepreneur. She passionately speaks at events in a variety of industries from technology, insurance and health companies through to government bodies and charities. She specializes in human performance, driving changes in productivity, well-being, retention and mindset using her special secret sauce, a handful of courage, a dash of science, a sprinkle of energy and a teaspoon of care. We go on to discuss some really interesting topics like what is the difference between self-care and self-indulgence? We talk about short-term fix opposed to long-term wellness and we also talk about the old living with an invisible illness. I'm really looking forward to bringing today's episode to you. So before we dive in, let's thank today's sponsor. Now, we all have those moments where the world feels like it is falling apart. Simple tasks are a grind and happiness seems just out of reach. But Commune are here to show you another way. The Commune Summit is a free 10-day online event featuring 25 of the world's foremost experts on health and wellness. Each day includes a keynote lesson and a daily practice so that step-by-step you can bring techniques into your life that lead to greater and greater ease and joy. Now, I've personally used this platform to learn from people I'm inspired by, such as Russell Brand, which helped me monumentally with my addiction recovery. Wim Hof, the crazy old Dutch guy known as the Iceman, who I've learned the power of cold exposure, which... For me now, it's it's involving sitting in zero to two degrees of an ice bath for up to five minutes, and it helps me massively with my mindset, but also my immune system. It makes my immune system stronger, which in the current times is extremely important. I've learned from Scott Schwenk, who is an amazing guy, such a beautiful human being, and he's taught me on breath work in more detail, and I've just started learning a nutrition course by Dr. Mark Hyman. 
At Commune, learning is a daily experience. Once you sign up, you will receive a daily email with access to course videos. This encourages you to develop a habit of wellness. Even better, you can sign up now to try this course for free. You like it? Great. If you don't, it doesn't matter. That's 10 days, 25 world-leading teachers, and all for free. Head to www.onecommune.com forward slash matter. That's www.onecommune.com forward slash matter to sign up to this course for free. Well, Flick, thank you for joining me on the show and a, a massive, massive welcome to you. Thank you so, so much for asking me to be on. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Now, um, I know, well, I know that you're very keen to dive into topics around the brain just as much as I am, but I'm a little bit more excited because you've probably got a little bit more knowledge on what's going on there. So I may ask you a, a whole heap of questions that may sound a little bit silly, but I'm very excited to, to be able to ask them. But before we get into that, you are, you're a bit of a hugger, I'm led to believe. What are you yes. doing in these crazy times where we've got to keep distancing? How are you sending out your love at the moment? You know, that's great. It has definitely been an interesting challenge for me because that is, you know, one of the primary ways that uh, I communicate my love with those that I'm closest to and even certainly with some of my, you know, business colleagues. Uh, but I think that, you know, words hold a lot of power and I think, if anything, this period of time has highlighted the importance of, of saying what is actually priority and getting to the crux of it. So I'm being very aware of keeping contact with people and saying what I consider to be the most important things. I'm just not leaving any of it to the side. I'm telling people why I value them, you know, what is great about them, why they bring value to my life and uh, making sure that those words are really highlighted and very, very clear. And the other way I guess I'm showing love is by trying to create space for people to check in with their health, with their emotional and mental health in particular. I'm running a lot of meditations and a lot of breathwork sessions online so that we can come together and feel connected even though we're isolated and all go through the experience together. I have a skill and I feel like it's the right thing to do to actually share that skill, especially now. Mental health is going to be something that a lot of people will experience now for the first time and uh, they won't have any frame of reference as to how to deal with it. Mm. Yeah, it's a very it's a very valid point and I completely agree. I mean, I've for, oh, for a very long time, the numbers that have been reported, I've you know always thought that they're extremely low and a lot more people are going through issues either that they don't or they're not aware of or that they essentially are too embarrassed or whatever to, to ask for help about. But what do you think... What do you think the main issues are currently that are going to cause um, some some moderate or severe mental health issues? Well, as you sort of highlighted at the beginning, you know, th this lack of hugging and lack of, of touch, a lot of people aren't aware that we actually have a chemical reaction to touch. It's, it's one of the reasons why we do touch one another. It, it actually releases oxytocin, which is our natural pain reliever and emotional sort of equilibrium creator 
So it is one of the, you know, predominant ways that we actually can create a sensation of love and it has a huge effect over how we feel physically, how our immune system functions, how our brain functions. So people that are suddenly going through this sort of withdrawal of that chemical reaction within the body, those mental health issues that maybe they weren't aware of before or didn't think were really a particularly big deal are suddenly going to come to the surface as being a really, really massive issue. And of course, as at the same time, we're aware we're under threat. So our brain, our least evolved part of the brain, our amygdala, is going to be jumping in constantly around the clock to tell us and remind us that we are under threat. And that is not a state that we are supposed to be in as humans on a permanent basis. That's really a fight or flight mode and it should be temporary. So when we are all in a heightened state and if we don't have any coping mechanisms for that, again, those mental health and emotional health issues are going to become really profound really quick. Yeah, definitely. And I, I know that we're going to talk about some of the ways that we can that we can manage those in, in just a little bit, um, which I think is going to be very, very important and valuable for, for a lot of listeners at the moment. But before we do so, look, you started your career in entertainment as a dancer and, and choreographer before heading um, into all things business, wellness, uh, fitness, mental health. Why the shift and what's driving the motivation for you? Sure. So really it comes down to, you know, this big, long, winding, very non-linear journey that I've been on in order to try and stay well enough to be a dancer. Um, You know, I have Crohn's disease, which is an invisible disease. It's incurable. Um, It's considered to be autoimmune. And I was told I wouldn't be able to dance. I would not be able to be a professional dancer. And that was my dream. And I really just wanted to find a way to be able to actually do it, stay well enough to do it. And it was becoming really, really hard to actually do that, to be able to keep up with what my counterparts were able to do. And so I had to start looking outside of the box for solutions to be able to do that. And as I started looking for solutions, it was just suddenly I was getting all of this education about my body and my brain and how important it was for me to recognize that my emotional, mental and physical health all played a role in my ability to to live well and that I couldn't leave any of those things out of the equation if I was going to try and be a, a dancer. And I succeeded in doing that, but in the process of doing that, I fell madly, deeply, almost obsessively in love with the human body and the brain. And so as I sort of started becoming more excited about all of that, and realizing that I'd actually put together a formula that was working for me under under circumstances that I really shouldn't have been able to kind of make this stuff work, I realized that I might have actually had something that I could offer, and that's what ultimately led me to sort of not only getting all of these qualifications in different areas and using all of this information to you know make my life better, but then realizing I could do something for other people and. So I sort of steered into that entrepreneurial journey and uh, I work with with a lot of people now who, not just like me, who have got autoimmune issues and things like that, but just helping people to realise that a quality of life is the aim, not necessarily to be fit. And so I'm sort of trying to change the conversation. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And, um, you know, I mean, some of your qualifications there, you're a certified wellness coach, personal trainer, meditation guide, dance teacher, you're a motivational key speaker, diploma in neuroplasticity, if I pronounce that correctly, and right. um, 
and an experienced entrepreneur. So there's a lot to fit in in there, and there's obviously a no- lot of knowledge that's um, that's gone into it, and a lot of I guess personal growth and development also that's driving it. So within that, I guess I really want to to pick out a couple of bits and pieces. More so, I think the the best value that we that we might be able to provide is is to be able to talk about how people can um, monitor their their stress and and identify and and then also how they can um, essentially prioritize that within their life. So, a couple of things that I wanted to to be able to ask you around the the work and the the experience that you do have is self care. It's a it's a I guess it's a my words that are thrown around um, quite a bit, quite easily, and sometimes people don't prioritize it or really understand it. So, can you explain self care and self indulgence? Absolutely, um, and you know that's a great question. I think a lot of people get caught out in a, in between those two different terms. So, the easiest way for me to describe it, first of all, is self care is the delivery system. That helps you to achieve wellness. So self-care, in other words, is not one size fits all. It's not about looking at the person next to you and trying to copy what they do to get your quality of life. It's about you taking the time to go on a journey to find out what what types of movement, what types of food, what types of rest, what types of um, you know mental health practices and emotional health practices move the needle for you. Because none of us are exactly the same. It is definitely a journey. And self-care effectively becomes like a checkpoint system to ensure that you have done something on a daily basis that covers your mental, your emotional and your physical health. So it's respecting that you need to be nurturing that actively and trying to align it in order to achieve your wellness or your quality of life. And that's going to be different to the next person because you might have, for example, a health issue or a mental health issue that needs to be taken into account for all of that. When you think about that, all of those things connect to everything you do in life. It's your relationships, your communication, your career, your business, your family. Nothing is unaffected by your quality of life. So it's about sort of setting that up. But the difference between self-care and self-indulgence, and I've certainly fallen down this rabbit hole, it's how I worked it out for myself, is self-indulgence is like a quick fix. It's the Band-Aid version of making yourself feel better. And we all fall into these habits. Most of us don't have very good coping mechanisms for life because we're really not taught how to live inside a human body or with a human mind. And so we find ourselves repeating the habits that we have seen. We mirror the things around us. So when we get stressed, a lot of us think, oh, God, I need a drink. So you go out and you have a big blowout with some alcohol or you find yourself binge eating a whole bunch of chocolate because it makes you feel better or you do some retail therapy because it lifts you up a little bit. And what that's doing is actually tapping into your dopamine stores. It's your instant gratification. It's the addictive center of the brain or the reward center. So what we find is a lot of people try to do all of these self-indulgent activities, but you're only going to get a high from it for a very short period of time. And then you drop back down. Dopamine doesn't automatically restore itself it requires nutrition and rest and movement and all of that kind of stuff so what we see is people creating a hole for themselves that they can't get out of they're draining their dopamine stores over and over and over again doing these kinds of activities that 
can actually be destructive for them if they're doing it repetitively, eating badly, you know, going out and drinking all night, spending more money than they have. And then they're actually lower in their mental health than what they were trying to cover up in the first place. So we have to kind of look at self-care versus self-indulgence being about what actually moves the needle for you, what nourishes you long-term and helps you to feel like you can sustain, cope and thrive with the life that you have as opposed to putting these sort of destructive band-aids over the top of everything all all the time. And so I guess this is a big reason as to why no one is immune to mental health issues because we are all human and Mm -hmm. we're all susceptible to, I guess, that self-indulgence and, and looking for that, that quick fix to, to, you know, to make us feel better. So for people that, that feel that they are, they are immune to this. Is there anything that you would say to, to those types of people? I don't know. I mean, I assume there's still a lot of those people around. <laughs> there's look, there's plenty of people that, you know, in all fairness, they may get through the first 40 or 50 years of their life without feeling that they've got any kind of mental or emotional health issues that they need to confront. And sometimes that's just purely circumstantial. It's because the circumstances they've found themselves in have not challenged them in a particular way or maybe they are totally fine and then one day they develop a health issue out of nowhere that sort of brings that on. So what I would say for most people is that because you can't predict exactly what's going to happen in life, you don't know if you're going to end up in an accident or have some kind of tragic thing happen or you know, maybe lose your job where you thought your job was totally safe. You have very little control over a lot of those things. So if you've got no coping mechanisms in place now, then what are you going to do when the unexpected in life actually comes? And that's where people get a real hit. Additionally to that, I would also say that because a lot of people don't spend time becoming self-aware of what is happening, they don't read the language of their body and their brain. And quite often it is actually trying to communicate with them that there is an issue that they need to be aware of. You know, people quite often will just, if they're getting repetitive headaches or rashes, for example, they'll stick a cream on it or they'll take a couple of tablets for it. And they're not actually looking at the fact that it's probably the body's way of letting you know that hey, I'm too stressed or I need to exercise or I need to eat better or something in my life is not working for me right now. And those things accumulate. They build up in the body. The body builds up toxins, especially if it has no way to release all of the pent-up emotion and mental health issues that are going on below the surface. And this contributes to a lot of the major things that do happen to people like heart attacks, which are related to stress. And it's not until that point that people go, wow, I've got an issue that I actually need to to work out and they're trying to then work out how to cope with it amid an actual tragedy and that's exceptionally hard. So I try to encourage people to look at their body as a, a system that is worth working out that because it facilitates and is part of every experience that you will ever have in your entire life, why not make it a good one? Why not actually get to know what makes you tick so that when those things get thrown at you in life, you actually have something to fall back on so that you can bounce back and actually, you know, take that uh, traumatic event and turn it into something good. Absolutely brilliant perspective because for me personally, that was something that I, I recognized within, I used to get headaches, like migraines 
all the time. I'm talking once or twice a week. And I just used to, any anytime it happened, obviously straight to, you know, paracetamol, Advil, whatever it was. But I would always look at it, oh, maybe I'm dehydrated. Maybe I slept wrong as opposed to understanding that I was, that was where I was holding a lot of my tension in my, you know, in my back and my neck and all of that sort of stuff. And it was a lot of the, the, the stressful environments that would cause me to tense up. And then all of a sudden I was sitting like that for a day or whatever and, and start to get those headaches. So legends out there, just take notice of what your body is telling you and, and don't just treat it with a bandaid. That's the, I think the message from that. Mm-hmm. You have a you have you have your first book, Living Human, uh, which is due out in the coming year, um, mm-hmm. and details your story of overcoming the odds. What's some of the lowest points you have faced? And you already have shared a little bit um, about yourself, but what were some of the lowest points that you have faced, and and what helped and hindered the situation? Sure. Look, I think um, you know one of the stories that would probably come out of my experience and would probably be fairly similar to a lot of people that do have invisible illnesses, um, particularly those that are dealing with you know chronic pain or autoimmune, is feeling like you are not welcome in the world there is no place for you that is made by society and that also goes many times in the medical field as well you are relegated to the sidelines and that is a really scary place to find yourself in particularly when you are seeking answers for something that is uh, extremely hard and it is very very common to be told that you know it's in your head that you're you know, making it up or that you're over-exaggerating the symptoms, you know, that it couldn't possibly be as bad as what you're saying it is because people can't see it from the outside. And this message doesn't just occur, you know, in the hospital or in the treatment room. This is also occurring at school. It's occurring at work. It's occurring in every bit of advertising and every book and every movie and everything that you see. So there's so little representation um, of people like that. That was definitely a huge challenge for me, particularly being so young, uh, to suddenly find myself essentially voiceless. I, I couldn't be heard by anybody and it felt very much like I was alone. And even that I had somehow caused this to happen to myself, that, that was sort of the frame in which a lot of the medical stuff was geared, even though that's not actually the reality. It's just sometimes how people with invisible illnesses are treated in in the process of getting to a diagnosis. So there was a lot of trauma around that and that carried on into adulthood. Um, And, you know, it's something I have to be aware of all the time to continue to work on my brain and and try and not allow those sorts of traumas to affect the decision-making of today. Uh, So that was, you know, a really, really low point um, for me, finding myself voiceless. And I would say also one of the other low points, as I mentioned before, was being told that I wouldn't be able to do what I wanted to do, that it just wasn't an option. Uh, In fact, I was also told that I probably wouldn't be able to run a business. I probably wouldn't be able to keep a job full time. So it sort of felt like every potential option was taken away from me in one foul swoop and uh, left with really no idea how to live inside my body at all. And no idea how to make a future work for myself. It was an incredibly miserable period of time for me. So those were probably a couple of, um, yeah, exceptionally low points. Yeah. And what helped you find your voice? 
I think really working through understanding my own body and committing myself to to recognizing that I wasn't actually broken at all. It's just my body worked differently to the status quo. And I had to learn to accept that and not try to make my body do things that the person next to me was trying to do. It was about trying to make my body work for me and my situation. And the more confident that I got in that and the more people that I met, particularly within, I guess, the holistic health field, who were very open to working with me as I stepped through everything and very encouraging in terms of me being able to ask questions and, you know, dig deeper and try and get to the why of how everything works. I became more confident. I could see myself becoming more resilient and more capable. And as I did that, I recognised that because the world wasn't going to make room for me, I had to change something. It was never going to change just for the sake of changing. I wasn't going to wake up tomorrow and everyone go, oh, yeah, we, we'll work everything around you. It was a case of me just kind of going, I have to take ownership of this thing because actually holding on to it, not talking about it, feeling like I'm being constantly punished by the world because something that's actually outside of my control is so toxic to my health, it's actually making my health worse. And so I just had to kind of look at my vulnerability, not as weakness, but actually as my strength and step into it and own it. And so that's really been a huge thing for me. My voice sort of came back by stepping into my vulnerability, which sounds sort of counterintuitive, but was has been the source of so much connection. And through that, I've actually built a group of, of people around me who are more supportive than I've ever had in my entire life. So it was really on me to, to do that work. Mm. I mean, that's, that's truly inspiring what you've, what you've just shared and, and sort of listening to that. I mean, vulnerability is something that it, it can be extremely difficult to obviously be truly vulnerable, but I think we understand that it is so powerful when you can, but there's mm. obviously a lot of barriers at times to be able to do so. But how how can you how can you become more vulnerable and, and be truly vulnerable? Is there things that you can do to assist that? Well, again, look, I think it does come back to the same root. I think if if people are not putting in the time to nurture who they are, they're not spending the time to work out, hey, what it, what triggers my body to do X, Y, and Z? What kinds of movements make me feel more relaxed you know have I got coping mechanisms for when somebody does reject me or shut me shut me down like am I meditating am I journaling what am I doing you know once those those pieces start to come in place you actually have something to turn to when you have those moments where you come up against the downside to stepping into your vulnerability at the beginning so if you just try and go from not ever talking about it to suddenly telling everybody and you've done none of the work to prepare yourself for coping with that, it's going to be exceptionally challenging. In fact, it might sort of uh, knock your confidence back so much that it's sort of like you have to regain your confidence to, to try it again. So for me, it was I didn't really try a lot of that until I had some of those coping mechanisms and things in place. And so that made it significantly easier for me to, to deal with the things that would come. And I guess in addition to that, I had to also be prepared for the fact that when you're dealing particularly with an invisible disease, 
most people don't know what it is that you're facing. They have no idea. So they're going to be coming either from uh, a completely, you know, out of place point of view where they just think that whatever you're talking about is incorrect. And that's just purely because they've never been exposed to any of that information before. They just don't know what they don't know. Or they're going to ask you a heap of questions. And so it's going to feel like as if you were a walking encyclopedia for whatever it is that you're facing. And so when you say, hey, I've got this thing, you're probably going to get a barrage of like 20 very deeply personal questions that would never normally get asked of somebody. But I started to see that as the gateway. The more that I actually was comfortable with doing that, that meant there was one more person in the world that was educated. There was one more person in the world that was going to be a supporter and an advocate. And one more person I didn't have to act okay around when I really wasn't okay. And so, again, improved my health but also made them more open-minded to the people around them. So I think, you know, you've got to start with looking after you and um, preparing for the questions that are going to come. I was just thinking then, so do you think that there's onus on on both people in the equation? Because just thinking about my perspective, so with my addiction early on, when I first went to the, the pillars of support that I associated within my life, I would, I explained to them and I, I got the, oh, why don't you just stop? Or why doesn't this happen? Or what, you know, because I didn't get it. And, and that, that negated me from telling anyone else the next time I fucked up because I didn't want to go back and get that same feeling. So not to go back in, into my situation, but with an invisible illness, with, you know, mental illness, with addiction, with things that people aren't going to get, do you think there's onus on you as the individual being understanding that when you do go and talk to someone, they're probably not going to get it. So you need to be okay with them sharing their experience or their point of view, but then also on, on, on their angle, they also need to be a little bit more compassionate perhaps. So it kind of takes both to come to the party to be able to assist. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And, you know, it's a complicated question to answer because there are so many factors realistically that go into it. I honestly, honestly believe that if we were all educated a bit more about what our human body, human brain, human mind is capable of, how to actually harness it, the things to kind of watch out for, even understanding that there are parts of the brain that can work addictively, that, you know, um, how our mental health changes our physical health. All those sorts of things. If we were we were taught that, we were given some coping mechanisms. You know, it's obviously being trialed in a few places, but things like yoga and meditation and stuff is starting to pop up in primary schools. If these were just standard things that happened, I think we would have a world that is a bit more understanding and empathetic and compassionate, which would make all of these conversations significantly easier. But if you are kind of, you know, you're an adult now and you're sort of waiting for the next generations, I guess, in a way to kind of change that, then yes, to some extent, there is ownership on both sides of that equation. It's partially the people that don't know. It's accepting, first of all, that there is always something to be learned in the world. Just because you've graduated from year 12 or gone through university doesn't mean your learning has capped. You are not just that for the rest of your life you continue to learn forever 
And so there's there's a sense that you've got to always be prepared for the fact that you may need to change your thinking at some point because your perception will be, you know, swayed. Um, and if it is you that's experiencing the thing, then then yes, to some extent, as difficult as it is, as much as you want the world to just accept you exactly as you are and not question it, the reality is that they are going to question it. And in order for you to stay well through that process, you need to, to have those skills in place, that support system in place to help you to walk through that. But the biggest benefit, honestly, I see it as such a positive now, is that by have the opportunity to not only help yourself but help the person that doesn't know at the same time it's not actually a losing situation at all it's a win if that person comes back to you and asks you questions about it rather than just telling you that you're wrong that's huge they're already part way there and you can help them do that and that's that person then goes and tells five or ten other people the same thing and it spreads and it spreads and it spreads so you you know you're really not just yeah helping yourself you're helping all the other people like you around you by actually answering those questions and being prepared to do so mm, very well said let's talk about a couple of things that you have mentioned already one being meditation and another being breath work now you run a podcast called authentic zen meditations um, and mm -hmm. one episode in particular focuses on the panic pack where you cover five different types of meditation. Can you briefly explain them? And is there an example that you could even give us or give the listeners? Sure. So it's, um, so just to clarify, it's not necessarily five different types of meditation, but it's five different meditation skills that actually kind of help you to cope with the different um, facets of the sensation of panic. So I take people through in that particular pack um, two different breathing cycles, actually three different breathing cycles, a calm breathing cycle, an intermediary breathing cycle, and a vagus nerve breathing cycle. And then I also take them through focus and physical relaxation. So the idea being that, number one, none of us are the same. So every skill is going to resonate with a different person. A lot of people have got a blanket idea of what meditation is. They start imagining a perfect shrine room with no noise and there's candles everywhere and a gong being hit in the background and water splashing over rocks. And the reality is none of these things are real life. Meditation only works if it's sustainable. And so it's about kind of looking at things like how do you cope with distraction as part of your meditation practice? How do you get your brain to actually focus in on the breath? Um, teaching people different breathing cycles that have different functions in the body. So, you know, your calm breathing cycle is just physical awareness, helps you to kind of bring the heart and blood pressure and breathing into alignment so that you're sort of stopping your sympathetic nervous system or fight or flight from trying to take over. Your vagus nerve breathing actually disables your sympathetic nervous system and enables your parasympathetic nervous system. So it changes your cognitive function, every organ's function. Um, it, it completely changes the neurotransmitters that are being released through the body. And your intermediary is sort of like a practice cycle allowing you to, you know, get used to the expansion and contraction of the diaphragm and making the body flexible and comfortable with the process of actually sitting in a meditative practice. Um, and then, of course, the physical relaxation is about 
those points where, you know, panic has set in. You've left it a little bit too long to get on top of it and now you find yourself with insomnia or you find yourself just totally wired up and you can feel the muscles and you feel everything just being super tense. And it's not about putting you to sleep, but it's about you creating a relationship with your physical self so that you're, you can get your brain to actually directly talk to different areas of the body to calm it down, helping that process of restoration and recovery. And I think that's really important, particularly now with COVID-19. Um, people are panicking. The amygdala, as I mentioned before, is kind of, you know, taking control. That sympathetic nervous system's firing off. We're all pumping with adrenaline. And that's just uh, it disables the immune system. It makes us feel really wired up and prevents us from sleeping and digesting and basically being able to do its job very well. So all of our decision-making when all of that's in control is pretty poor because it's survival. It's not thinking about long-term quality of life. It's how do I stay alive right now in this minute? And I think uh, people in isolation, they need to be disabling that as much as possible so that they can think clearly, make the right decisions for themselves and actually keep themselves well and prepare for the new world when it comes. And because the Mind Over Matter listeners are all extremely intelligent, I'll ask this question purely from my perspective because there's a lot of words in there that I just don't understand. But <laughs> simply put, meditation and breath work because there's a lot of, you know, it helps this, it helps that, it helps that. And a lot of people just go, nah, whatever, I don't get it. Simply mm-hmm. put, what is what is you know one extremely direct benefit that people will get from actually committing to to doing some form of meditation or breath work? Building a relationship with your body that allows you to actually work with it rather than feeling like it's constantly working against you. Mm. You don't know what you don't know. And if you've never bothered to build a relationship with your body, you have no way of understanding what it's trying to tell you. Meditation and breath work is effectively a way for you to learn the language of your body so that you can give it what it needs when it needs it and actually make decisions that improve every area of your life. Mm. Thank you for that, for clarifying that for me. Sure. Now, I, I spoke about, and it was only very, very brief, but it fascinated me. So I'm hoping you can dive in. And I know you just spoke about the, the vagus, nerve, uh, vagus nerve breathing very quickly just then i had a um we i briefly spoke about that back in episode four with scott schwank who is a meditation and breathwork coach can you explain a little bit more just around that vagus nerve breathing and why that specifically benefits us sure so your vagus nerve is the largest nerve running through the body from or large cranial nerve so it runs from your head all the way through your body and it actually speaks and connects to every organ within your body as well and um, so what you'll find is that when the vagus nerve is being triggered it changes the whole body it's not just changing one area of the body Uh, vagus nerve breathing is largely related to an extended exhalation cycle and it is through continuous extended exhalations that an ach transmitter is actually released or neurotransmitter is released in the body. And that's what sort of triggers it off. That sends a message up to the brain, telling the brain, hey, everything good, you know, immune system on, go, digest your food, get your sleep cycle ready, let's rebalance everything, let's detox, like let's get everything in alignment and moving. 
And most importantly, it actually communicates with the very cells that make up your body. So if you are putting yourself into a more positive state on a regular basis, your cells are getting the information that things are generally positive, which means those cells shape and gear themselves towards more positivity. So what we, what we think, what we express or don't express, what we, what we eat, how we move, all of that is actually communicating to those cells. And the parasympathetic nervous system is part of that function. So the vagus nerve effectively is kind of the green light. Hey, everything is good to go. Let's get on with it. The huge benefit of it, and I've found this particularly for dealing with emotional and physical pain, is that it actually helps us to release a whole bunch of positive neurotransmitters like oxytocin, serotonin, endorphins, and that actually reduces our physical and emotional pain. So rather than allowing that to be in control, therefore disabling all the functions of our organs and preparing us at a cellular level for more negative, it prepares us for more positive. Thank you for explaining that. It's, um, it makes a lot of sense. Is it hard to do though, or is it, is it easy? <laughs> you know what? I think it's actually surprisingly easy, but I think for people that have never done a breathing or like breath work session before, I would start at the basics, which is sort of your calm breathing cycle, you know, in through the nose for four, out through the mouth for four. Just getting comfortable sitting and being present with the body, just breathing and learning to be comfortable with all of the emotions and the physical sensations that start coming up when the brain suddenly realizes, oh, we're sitting still. I can tell you all the stuff that I've been trying to tell you. I'm now going to blast you with it. Once you kind of get through that, then you're really prepared for that vagus nerve um, breathing cycle. It can feel a little funny the first few times you do it. Some people describe the first 30 seconds as being a little bit woozy. And that's actually the indicator that your vagus nerve has been triggered. So if you can sit with that discomfort for about 30 seconds, you come out of that session just feeling two million bucks. You are floating. Everything in the world is good. The body feels great. You are total zen. You are ready for anything that life throws at you. Like people just walk out with a smile, like from here to here, just like life, bring it on. Everything is great. So I encourage people, encourage people to do it very, very much, especially if you deal with physical or emotional pain. When do you do your breathing and meditations? Do you have specific times or? I have, uh, I'm all set the routine that I'm going to do it daily. Um, some people, particularly when they get started, it is highly likely that you'll need to set aside a specific time in order to make the, the practice consistent. You know, it does take over 21 days for anything to click. So I always say to people to find something, you know, in terms of timing where you think 75% of the time, I reckon I can commit to this. For a lot of people, it's right before they go to sleep because they know they're already in bed, they put their headphones in, they've done everything else they need to do, then they can meditate. Um, but for me now, because it's such a normal part of my practice and I use it proactively and reactively that I will use it at all different types of the day. Like I'll do it in the shower. I'll do it when I'm sitting on the toilet. I'll do it when I'm laying in bed. You know, I'll do it when I'm driving the car. There's so many different use cases. I do it in the middle of boardroom meetings. People don't even realize because they can't see it, how much I'm actually like, oh, okay, I'm just going to go into my my uh, vagus nerve breathing cycle now i do it before i do keynote speak speeches to make sure cognitively i'm like a-okay and ready to go so I, I just sub it in wherever i need it now yeah cool 
Well, look, thank you so much for for sharing a lot of your wisdom and and tips and and insights into a lot of a lot of that stuff, which is going to be extremely valuable for for so many people, not just during COVID nineteen, but uh, ongoing um, on top of that as well. Um, for anyone that wants to um, check out um, Flicks work you can head to coreauthenticbody.com which is c-o-r-e-t-h-e-n-t-i-c-b-o-d-y.com what about personally flick how can people connect with you and also i know you've dropped a lot of value in there but what is what is the best and last piece of advice that you would like to provide the listeners sure um so the first part of the question you can reach out to me Obviously, as you mentioned, the Authentic website. Uh, we've also just released my personal website, so you can get to me by flickmanning.com. It's all one word. Uh, you can get to me on social media. I'm very active on Instagram. Again, at flickmanning. You can reach me there as well. But pretty much just type in flickmanning. You'll find me all over the place, I promise. I'm very easy to get in touch with. And uh, in terms of one last piece of advice, I would just really try to remind people especially at this particular time with what we're going through is that growth and struggle go hand in hand and if you can get comfortable with being uncomfortable in your period of struggle you're going to come out the other side so much better than when you went into it in every possible way so as much as this time is really really hard uh, see it as an opportunity to work through the struggle learn a whole bunch of stuff about your body, your mind, what it is that you want from life and what are priorities in your life. And you will come out the other side way better than you went into this whole period of isolation. Thank you so, so much for having me on the show. I really, really appreciate your time and um, such wonderful questions. Thanks so much to Flick for joining me on the show and sharing her incredible knowledge. And remember guys, living with an invisible illness, your body isn't broken, it's just different to the normal status quo. I really appreciate you listening and tuning into the show. Uh, if you haven't subscribed, please do so and then that way you uh, the next episodes will be sent directly to your feed and you won't miss out on any of the upcoming episodes. What we're going to be focusing over the course of the next few uh, episodes and next few weeks, we're going to, going to dive deeper into specific mental illnesses and talk about what helps and hinders people living with them. This will be beneficial for you if you live with a mental illness and also if you know someone who does and you want to learn how to help them even more than you already do. For me personally, I understand the importance and the power of lived experience. I've seen how valuable it is for not just recovery, but also for education. So what we want to do is dive into those conversations and really educate, but also just support and care. Because living with mental illness certainly isn't easy, particularly during difficult times. For me personally, I've begun to understand what really triggers me, but also what I need from those around me when I'm struggling. So until then, guys, see you on the next episode. Stay safe, stay healthy, and take the power back.